So this morning we continue on in a year-long journey that we are taking as a church that we're calling Living the Liturgical Year. And every Sunday, as we said, we will be guided by the lectionary texts that are assigned by the church. And for the first half of this year, as we talked about last week, really up until Pentecost, till early summer, the lectionary texts that we will be focusing on every Sunday are the gospel texts. We are going to be immersing ourselves in Jesus. We're going to be chronologically following his life, which starts with the prophecies about his birth. And we are going to be immersing ourselves in his teaching, in his ministry, in his presence, in his, res- in, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, and his ascension. And throughout his life, Jesus changed the world, changed people, changed hearts, changed minds, changed societies, changes nations. And what we believe is, is that we immerse ourselves now in the person of Jesus. He is going to transform us, our lives, the ways and patterns and habits that we have, that we will be transformed and come more alive as we take this journey of immersing ourselves in him. Now, last week we looked at the beginning of his adult ministry, his public ministry that really began with his baptism the hands of John the Baptist in the wilderness. And today we turn to the Gospel of John and read and we'll be talking about the first of his miracles, the turning of water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. So the text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to listen to God's word to us all today. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Now, for those of you who have been at this church for a while, you know that I have a philosophy and a way of preaching. I'm not saying it's the best way. I'm not even saying it's a better way than any others, but it's my way of doing it. And my way of doing it is that I try to have one primary point to every sermon and to drive at that point uh, so that there's some depth to it. 
That's different from some other preachers. Classic preachers are often known as three-point preachers. Uh, and if they're really creative, each of their three points, it's an alliteration, so it starts with the same letter so you can remember it, and, uh, and that's how it works. I just hope you remember one thing that I say. I don't have three things. I'm just trying for there to be one thing that you might remember and hold on to. And so we're gonna do that today, but it's gonna take us a little while to get there. We're gonna start a little differently today. And that is we're gonna kind of walk verse by verse for about 10 minutes through this and just do like kind of an old school Bible study in this because there are threads and things in this passage, the context of this passage and the symbolism of this passage, that because we're gonna be immersing ourselves in Jesus for months to come, these are threads that are present here that we're gonna see again and again and again. And I want us to identify them and see them so that we can more fully experience who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's saying to us, okay? So this might feel a little bit like drinking out of a fire hose. Just stick with me. We're gonna to try to organize it through the screens here. You might take some notes. You might take pictures of the screens just to remember this. Um, but here we go. All right, point number one that's here that I think is important, a first uh, important context or symbol is in verses one and two, and it's a wedding on the third day. What John is doing here is John is telling us from the beginning, on the third day, you need to be ready for something to happen, for a new thing to happen, for new creation to happen. It's important that this miracle takes place at a wedding because, and I say this to every couple I do premarital counseling with, the language in the Bible, the imagery of the Bible around marriage is the language of creation and recreation. For instance, when Jesus, the one time he talks about marriage, he says that a man will leave his father and mother's house and will join his wife and the two will become one flesh. What the point he's really trying to get out there is something new emerges in a wedding. Something new emerges. The two become one and it becomes something that's not existed before. It's creation imagery. It's creation language. And so this takes place at a wedding. It takes place on the third day. And so John is saying to us, and as Easter people, we have a sense of some of why John's doing this, but he's going, pay attention to number three. Pay attention to the new thing that emerges on the third day. Okay? Got to see the symbolism that's here and the context. All right, number two. Next verses, verses three through five. Uh, what I want to just point out here, because we, we can't look at this passage without talking about this, is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is a role model and a model for discipleship. And I think sometimes in the, in the Protestant church, we don't talk about Mary enough. Right. And when we do, we talk about her in Advent. Like you have your moment with the angel Gabriel and we pay attention to you that week. And then we move on. Then there's, you know, 51 other weeks, but that's your week. That's your shining moment. And it is a shining moment. But we see in this passage that Mary is an amazing woman of faith. She is a model for women and for men about what a life of a disciple, a fully alive life, a joyful life can look like. And what I want us to see of why she's a model here is that Mary in this story steps into a crisis. Now, we don't see it as a crisis. We see it as an inconvenience, right? Oh, they ran out of wine. Um, somebody can run down the street, you know, like whatever, right? Or everybody's on your own. You just get through it, we'll kind of move forward. At the time of the New Testament, um, weddings work quite differently. 
Wedding celebrations would last for days. So this was a celebration that went on day after day after day. And it was a way of launching this new couple into their new life. And it reflected on them. It reflected on their uh, families of origin. And so everybody would be invited in the community and the families of the bride and the groom were expected to provide all of the food and to provide all of the drink. And if it went well, it would sort of launch this couple into a life of, uh, of kind of more seeing of, of maybe having some honor to it. But if it didn't go well, there was shame and a stigma attached to that couple and to those families going forward. Running out of wine at a wedding feast was a really, really, really big deal. And Mary doesn't sit there, as some of us might do, or as the other guests might have done, and gone, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. Like, they had months to get ready for this. How were they not ready? You know, there wasn't like the gossip and the like, oh, and like the judgment and made you feel a little better about your wedding because we didn't run out of wine at ours. I mean, I don't know about you guys. We didn't run out of wine. They ran out of wine. And what this means, Mary responds to a crisis with compassion. She moves towards it. She moves towards the crisis. She moves towards the emergency. She moves towards this moment of potential pain and shame on these families and doesn't sit back and go, well, I'm, well I'll just either gossip about it or assume somebody else is going to do something. And that is a model of how you and I are called to live. We talked about what it means to be people that in our lives or in our relationships where we live, work, and play. Around the world, our work in mission partners in Zambia is to go into places where there is struggle and respond and to do so with compassion. Last week, we talked and invited you into a spiritual practice for the new year into a prayer that Steve Hayner, a mentor and friend, taught me. And I know that many of you have been praying it daily as I invited you to do. I know that some of you have had some, already some stuff bubbling up from this prayer and God's doing something in it. So we said, this is a dangerous prayer because God's gonna respond. But we said that this is a way of understanding how to live in this new year of rather than living and starting 2022 going, God, here's what I'm gonna do. Here are my resolutions. Here's my goals. Here's what my life's gonna look like. Here's how I'm gonna judge success and failure. Is rather, what we said is, rather than telling God how you're going to achieve a great life in 2022, as people of faith, what does it mean to be open to receive what God has for us? The difference in that is significant. And we said this prayer can posture you to be like, God, what do you want? And we said there's three parts to that prayer, if you remember. Lord, help me to see the world the way that you see it. Help my heart to break by the things that break your heart. And help me not to duck. I mean, to see the world the way that you see it, help my heart to break, let my heart break by what breaks your heart and help me not to duck. While we've been praying that, if you want to know what that looks like in action, look at Mary. She sees this situation by the shame that she knows is there. She responds because she knows that shame, and many of us deal with levels of shame in our lives, and it can be debilitating. That God is saying, no, I, I don't desire that for you. I want to free you of that. I want to free this couple of that. Her heart breaks by the things that breaks God's heart, and she doesn't duck. She steps straight into the middle of that situation. When you want to have an image in your life of what a life of discipleship looks like, Mary should be someone that comes to mind. And this passage is rich. All right, those verses three through five. Number three of these four fire hose, got to see this, context and symbols. Verses five through nine, the servants are witnesses. This is a theme that we're gonna see again and again and again. We've gotta pay attention to it. 
when we pay attention to Jesus and what he does and how he works is that continuously people who are not on the who's who list of society are given a front row seat to what it is God is doing. Where do we see that first? Well, when Gabriel comes to Mary and then to Joseph and says, you're going to build the, be the Messiah. These were not people who were on the insider's club of elite society at the time. They were rural, blue collar. They were not on anybody's who's who list. And Jesus says to them, God says to them, you are going to be the family that bears the Messiah. We see at his birth, who are the ones that are given the announcement from the angels to come and they come singing into this newborn's life where they're trying to establish napping and feeding cycles. And the, you know, but it's shepherds who show up. Shepherds were seen as one of the dirtiest, lowest professions that existed in society at the time. But it's to them that the angels come. And they are the ones who get to come to the manger and to worship and to sing praises about the child that's been born. Who are the ones that Jesus chooses as disciples? Tax collectors, fishermen, nobody that the established society would have said, that's who you get to start a spiritual movement. But they're the ones that Jesus picks and anoints. And once again here, we see that who are the ones that get the front row seat? It's the servants. It's the lowest on the rung. They get to witness the miracle. In our society today, we talk about branding and cultivating our brand. If Jesus wanted to cultivate his brand, he would have gone to the bridegroom. He would have gone to the chief steward who could have gotten word out. And he doesn't do that. It's the people who are often on the lowest rung of society's ladder that God says you are included when everyone else tells you you're not. And it's a great theme that we need to see and pick up on and that we need to live out ourselves. One of the hallmarks of this church in recent years has been that we have sought in action and in giving to move beyond the walls of our church and to lift up people in this city and around the world that might feel like they're more on the outsides. And that has to continue. And it's not charity work. This is so important of why we do this. When you get invited to go uh, later in the year to be a part of one of our local mission partners, when you learn about Zambia, if you go to Cuba, if you go to Belize, on these things. We do this not just because we're really nice people that want to help, but when we go into these places, we join those that have a front row seat at what God is up to in the world. And that is why we come back often going, oh my gosh, I am filled up and refreshed and excited about life and faith because of my time. I don't know if I helped anybody out there, but it made a huge difference in my life. We have to see this. All right, last, number four. The symbolism of turning water into wine. These are the last verses. Again, I just want you to see this. And this is just wonderful symbolism in this text. We can't miss it. We can't talk about it without pointing it out. Jesus could respond to a lack of wine in a lot of ways. What's interesting is how he chooses to remedy the situation is he gets these, he points out these six very heavy stone jars for the Jewish rite of purification. They would be filled with 20 to 30 gallons. When these become wine, that's enough wine for the party and then some. <laughs> Jesus gives abundantly. But what are these vessels and this water used for? They're, as we talked about last week, they're the forerunners of what we've now known as baptism. It's that water was symbolically used to purify and cleanse from sin. The law said that to become pure, you have to do this bathing ritual to purify yourselves. And it is in those jars that Jesus changes water into wine. 
And what is wine symbolic of? Blood. How are we purified in our world today? By the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of sins for all. It is a transformation here of a religious rite and ritual of what we have to do to become pure to a foretaste of what Jesus has done in his sacrifice that makes us pure once and for all, that we need no 30-gallon stone water jugs outside of this sanctuary or outside of your home to become pure because Jesus has done what we cannot do. This first miracle is a symbol and an announcement about who he is and what he's about. And you can't talk about this passage without seeing it. So again, that's a lot of stuff and not normally how I start a sermon, but I need you to see what's in these verses because as we immerse ourselves in Jesus, these themes are gonna come up again and again and again and again. And we need to embrace them, okay? All right. In the very limited time we have left, I want to revert how I normally preach, which is there's one thing that I want you to know. There's one thing that I think lies at the heart of this. This is a very awkward transition we're making to one primary point that I think is central to this passage and that I think is an invitation to life and greater life to every single one of us that's here today. And so I want to transition from walking through these verses to focusing in on this one thing that lies at the heart of this passage. And to get at it, to help us make this transition maybe in our own minds, I want to bring up a quote. I want to read a quote to you, and we want you to read it. It is from uh, pastor and author Tim Keller. And it's a way that he describes how you handle miracle stories like this. Okay, so this one and others. And listen to what Tim Keller writes. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but are also wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. Now he says that this is how you handle these miracle stories. And think about this. He says that what you got to do is look back and look forward. Whenever you encounter these miracles of Jesus, Jesus isn't just showing off. Jesus isn't sitting there going, well, water to wine, guess what I'm going to do next week to Lazarus. It's going to even blow your mind even more. It's not just attracting attention. And it's really important we see this. When Jesus is doing these miracles, he is reminding us to look back into how God intended creation to be and to look forward to how creation will be in the end, in heaven, in eternity, in the kingdom to come. Do you see that? It's easier to see in something like Lazarus, right? Is that when God created uh, the garden in the beginning, God didn't create for there to be death. Death is part of the wages of sin, of living in a fallen world. And that's how it was meant to be in the beginning. How will it be in the end? The, the Bible describes that heaven and eternity, there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sickness. 
So when Lazarus is raised from the dead, it's not just to get people's attention. God's restoring creation to the way it's meant to be. Do you see that? And that is a wonderful question to get to us at our central point for today, which is this. What is God restoring by turning water into wine? What is God restoring for how things were in the beginning and how they will be in the end? And when you think about it that way, you realize that this is not primarily about alcohol or a statement about alcohol. And it's not primarily at its core even about a wedding, as important as those symbols are, and they are important here as we've talked about. That what Jesus is restoring here is a celebration of life together, of community, of a kind of community where we gather around and at the center of that community is the person of God, is the person of Jesus. Jesus is at this feast. They are all there together for days. And it is so important to how creation is meant to be that Jesus is going, I don't want this party to stop because this is what creation ought to look like. Where do we see that in looking back to the beginning? How is it that that kind of celebration of community and life together with God at the center of it, how is that at the beginning? Well, that's what the garden's all about. Have you ever stopped and thought about rather than like, when did that happen and how do we think about it? I mean, all those are important. But why did God create in the first place? Why are you here? Why am I here? Why was any of this put into motion? There is something about the nature of God that is inherently relational. God delights in creating. God didn't have to create anything. God can do whatever he wants to do. But creates because there's delight in the creator in being in creation. God is at God's core, essentially relational being. And you and I as the creation are created in that image. So that's how it looks in the beginning. That's how it was meant to be. God walking in the garden and people who are there. And, you know, it's how it worked, right? And what's it going to look like in the end? What's heaven? What's eternity? There's some terrible perceptions we've talked about before in our society that we talk about. Heaven and kingdom and eternity. It's not going to be bouncing around on clouds, playing harps with little wings. It's not what it's going to be. And it's not that thing where people say at his, you know, a memorial service like, oh, Bobby, he's playing 18 anytime he wants to now. No, he's not. No, he's not. It's better than that. It's, and, and Bobby, no matter how much he liked golf, would get bored after year 237 of just do it again, right? The Bible's very clear of what eternity is going to be. It, it says in the last chapter of the whole Bible that we will gather in the new Jerusalem and that people will come from every tribe and every tongue, every culture, that we're not going to be individuals there. We're going to have, be one common humanity, brothers and sisters, gathered around a throne. And at the center of that throne is God. And what will eternity be? It's when God looks into our eyes. God is an inherently relational being, and so are we. And eternity will be when we see into the eyes of our maker and will be so filled with relationship, so filled with belonging, so filled with love that we will lose track of time and space. And so for there to be a wedding feast where folks are united wanting the best for this couple and that Jesus is at the middle of that gathering, that is a foretaste of what creation shall be forever.
And it is a powerful miracle in any time and space, but it is an especially powerful miracle for our society at this time because, and I want you to hear this, and I'm not saying this to lob hand grenades at our culture, but we are regressing as a people at living in this kind of community. We are becoming more and more individualized. We are becoming more and more concerned with our individualism and with our individuality. And so I have got my life and my way of being and my truth and my patterns of living and nobody can tell me what I'm gonna do. I am an island unto, I am a sovereign nation unto ourselves. And into that culture of loneliness and reaping the whirlwinds of loneliness, which what doctors and psychologists are telling us is coming and has come, and that was before a global pandemic. We proclaim a different way of being. That we are meant for life together. That we find meaning and purpose in relationship. And so today we invite you again to consider what living that out looks like. I want to close with this. I, some of you have heard this before. I, I've, I've heard it said, if you want to know about the measure of your spiritual life, look at your calendar and your checkbook. You know, that, that'll tell you what you really believe. And usually pastors bring that up when they're asking you to give money to something. Uh, I want you to know I'm not asking you to give money to anything. I want to focus on the calendar part. I think the way that we live this out in our crazy, busy, online, hyper-individualized world is that we need to become conscious going into this year of how we shape our time. Because on the table outside today, there are on-ramps to Bible studies, to small groups, to prayer groups, to mentoring relationships for you becoming a part of not just a crowd that goes to church, but becoming a part of community. And it is holy and sacred work to do so. And maybe you've tried before and maybe it didn't work or maybe it didn't take, but what I will tell you is we are gonna be out there week after week. We are gonna work with you tirelessly again and again and again to find your pocket of who you're doing life together with because we think it's as sacred and as holy and as important as anything that we can do in life. That there's a meaning that comes from it that cannot be found anywhere else. That might mean that if you're already in those pockets of community, you need to start disciplining your time in order to make those meetings start to happen again in a new year. My small group met on Friday night for the first time in 2022, and we almost didn't go. It was like, oh, it's Omicron going on, and then tell us, let's meet outside of Cedar, and then, oh, and you're gonna be all filled up, and then you can't tell the difference is Cedar or Omicron, you know, we're gonna do this. But we wound up meeting outside. We spent there, and was like, we'll just be fast, and Cedar, and you know, and, 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 but it was three hours went by. And each one of us shared about what's going on in our lives. Each one of us asked and shared how we can be prayed for. And every person there was prayed for in that time. None of us walked out with a solution. None of us were told how it all works. But you walk out different than how you go in because people are standing with you and praying with you and speaking with you and listening to you and loving you. And Jesus is going, I don't want that to stop. We're keeping the party going. You're invited, every one of you. There's no qualification need to explore what this looks like. And there's no reward that's greater that you will find than if you live into it. So I invite you this day. 
I invite you this week, I invite you no matter who you are to come and join us on this sacred, wondrous, life-giving, beautiful journey of community. And what a wondrous path lies before us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for you to give us this vision for each of our lives. Help us to shape our time by re-engaging or maybe exploring engaging for the first time what life together community looks like. How this wedding feast celebration and what it foretells can be a part of our story on a weekly, daily, yearly basis and sweep us off our feet in love. Give us the resilience to keep saying yes and have hopeful expectation about what will happen next. In Jesus' name, amen.